Welcome back to Allied, the podcast for everything you need to know about web and video accessibility. I'm your host, Elisa Lewis, and on today's episode, we have accessibility expert Miranda Hoffner, who specializes in arts and culture. Miranda is joining us from the Lincoln Center for the Performing Arts to talk about accessibility in the performing arts. Miranda is the resident expert in accessibility at the Lincoln Center and has reshaped Lincoln Center for the Performing Arts commitment to accessibility and inclusion through policy, innovative programming, and internal consensus building. She also served on the inaugural Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, or DEI, Council. Additionally, Miranda has created and managed two graduate fellowships in partnerships and programs and in digital accessibility, coaching future leaders in accessibility. Miranda's current role at the Lincoln Center is Associate Director of Accessibility and Guest Services. In this role, she creates sustainable systems to ensure accessibility is infused at all levels of the organization for staff, guests, and artists alike. We're so excited to have Miranda join us on Allied today. It's going to be a great conversation. So thank you, Miranda, so much for being here on the Allied podcast. We're super excited to have you. Um, To start, I'd love to know a little bit more about you and how you got your start working in Access. I understand that you began your career working in museums, and I'm curious how you transitioned to the performing arts and what that transition was like for you. Great. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Um, It's interesting because I felt a lot of pangs when I moved from museums to performing arts, thinking I was leaving behind this this material culture that I loved so deeply. Um, But once I got there, I realized that the work is the same. It's really um, rooted in accessibility, rooted in equity. So the work that I was doing at museums to bring people in to experience culture is very, very similar um, to the work to bring people in to have them experience culture in performing arts instead. Um, and I, I, my route into access is uh, different than a lot of other folks. Um, I don't identify as having a disability currently, so it doesn't come from a personal place. Um, it really just comes from a, a, a real like love and passion for culture and thinking as we're designing these beautiful experiences, designing exhibitions, designing performing arts experiences, how, what people are being left out of that process and why are barriers uh, there and how can we remove those barriers? Um, so again, the work in museums, the work in performing arts is really rooted in the same place. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. So I know that for individuals who may be new to the topic, um, particularly those who are non-disabled or identify as non-disabled, the concept of accessible performing arts may come with a lot of questions, a lot of assumptions, um, and may, you know, seem a little bit um, confusing. Can you share, you know, generally what an accessible performance looks like Um, And then, you know, later in the conversation, we can dive in a bit deeper. Sure. Um, We can start with live performances, live in-person performances, which I know at a time that we're all living in right now, it's something we deeply miss. I know I deeply miss going to live performances. Um, So the the basis is um, what are sort of the bones of the experience? Um, Are you designing an experience that happens in a a standard performing arts venue with seats or not? What do those seats look like? How close together are the seats? Um, Is your space ADA accessible? Um, So those are some of the places that we begin with. 
with just making sure that the, the basis of the experience um, matches the ADA accommodations um, requirements that are needed for a physical space. Um, then we want to get into um, what what is uh, sort of the most important elements that we want our audience to take away from it. Um, so if it's a performance that um, spoken word is really critical to it, um, what are ways that we can enhance that experience to make sure that people get access to those words? So is captioning or ASL interpretation a really important way to make sure that that integral connection with the, with the piece is accessible, as accessible as possible. Are there really interesting visual elements to the piece that if you were blind or had low vision, you would be missing, again, a really essential component of what the artistic experience should be? How can you add audio description to those components to make sure that those are accessible um, for people who are blind or have low vision? Um, then you want to sort of consider the social experience of attending a performance. So um, for people who um, have uh, cognitive, intellectual, developmental disabilities, sensory disabilities, are you getting into the performance at the same time where there's a really big crowd? Are you explaining, you know, a, a complicated security process ahead of time? So what are some of the ways that you can decrease anxiety with those transitions to just getting to your space for people um, that have um, sensory sensitivities, things like that? Um, are there production elements like flashing lights or really loud noises or things that are sort of sudden um, that you want to warn people about ahead of time. Um, so I think it's important, again, to just begin with sort of that basis, um, the physical space that you're beginning with, and then think of how you can layer these on that, that enhances the, the artistic experience and what the artist is trying to bring across. That's great. Thanks for explaining that. Some barriers, I think, may seem a little bit more obvious than others to individuals who maybe are kind of new to this concept. Um, you know, one thing that comes to mind is not being able to hear music, um, but I'd love to dive into the nuance. What are some of the biggest accessibility barriers in the arts? I think one that um, is, is spoken about really beautifully from, um, I've heard it mentioned from lots of people, but Peter Slayton is, is one um, really amazing person in the field that I look to a lot um, as a leader. And he talks a lot about social inclusion. Um, so I think you can have the most um, physically accessible um, performance that is taking place in the most accessible venue that has all the accommodations you could imagine. But if you don't have trained staff that are really there to create a welcoming environment for everyone, if you don't have a diverse audience space where people can see people that look like them and interact with the piece like they would, um, and if you don't have staff members that um, are, again, diverse from a variety of backgrounds, ideally people with disabilities in all levels of your organization, and if you're not presenting art that connects with with people from a wide variety of backgrounds. Those are all cues that you're you're um, you're not making it as socially inclusive as you possibly could. Um, so there's I think that that's a really important piece that people don't always consider, um, especially if you're building a new building that again is the most accessible building you ever could have. If you're not really welcoming people in and making them feel um, like it's a place for them, a welcoming place for them, then you're not actually doing the, the work of accessibility. Absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. One question that I have for you, and I think, you know, it's a bit related to this idea of sort of social inclusion, is how do you successfully navigate programming disability-specific performances while also integrating disabled audiences into general performances? Yeah, thank you for asking that question. It's something that I, I struggle with almost every day in my position, and I have in, in the field over the last decade. Um, I've thought a lot about this, and I really, I think that it kind of comes down to the, the world that I want to live in that we all should be hoping to live in in the world that we live in right now. Um, so the world that I hope to live in is that anyone can come to anything they want that interests them. For example, if you are um, someone who is deaf, you probably need to let 
um, and to require to request your accommodation of having an interpreter several weeks in advance. Um, if you are not deaf, you can just buy a ticket to a lot of shows and not have to worry about that, um, you know, request ahead of time. So as we think about sort of integrating dis disability specific programs versus integrated experiences, um, we can't really do and have integrated experiences be accessible for everyone until we start breaking down a lot of these barriers around accommodations. Um, I also wanna um, acknowledge the, the trauma of, of many disabled people um, and the experiences that they felt of being you know, historically, systemically kept out of public accommodations, kept out of the arts um, especially. Um, and that if you are someone who um, has acquired your disability later in life, you, um, you may not feel quite comfortable advocating for yourself yet. Or if you're someone who's had a disability, who's born with a disability, you may feel as though you're advocating for yourself constantly in all aspects of your life. And there, there's a level of trauma there, right? Um, so we also want to consider how disability specific audiences means that some people feel that they can just kind of walk in and, and relax and take a breath and really feel like everyone there understands their needs and that they don't need to explain something, fight for something, advocate for something. So I think that there's some power in disability specific programming um, that, again, provides a sense of community, brings people together, lets people relax a little bit. Um, and I think there's a bridge that, that uh, I'm hoping that Lincoln Center is really um, helping helping move towards. So uh, we work a lot with families with, with young people with disabilities, and a huge number of our families are um, families with young people with autism. And they stick with us for a long time. So young people become teenagers, become adults too. So we've known them, you know, we, we work with people through their lifespan. Um, but I'm thinking of a lot of families with young people with autism that um, come to us for disability specific supported programs. And then they sort of graduate for lack of a better word to um, more mainstream performances because they, they learn a little bit more about being comfortable in our space. They learn a little bit more about strategies for um, being in inclusive audience spaces. And, you know, again, while I'd love for everyone to be able to come to anything they want. I think for some people having that choice is, is really, really vital and important. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, you mentioned something a little bit earlier in the conversation just around the anxiety that kind of comes along with having to, you know, make these requests, plan in advance, kind of like plan, you know, map everything out ahead of time. Um, and that is exhausting. Um, so it, it definitely sounds like it's really helpful to have sort of the best of both worlds and um, I agree that kind of the the vision for the world is just to have one, um, you know, type of one offering that is inclusive and um, accessible and kind of perfect for everyone. Um, but we're not quite there yet. I really wanted to ask you, you know, I think a lot of people, again, who maybe aren't familiar with accessibility in the performing arts may wonder, you know, how or why can someone who's blind or low vision or deaf um, really enjoy art, um, particularly art that maybe does rely heavily on sight or on hearing. And what have you learned in your work about these assumptions that you can maybe share with the audience? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, one really transformative moment that I had in, in my work with with accessibility uh, happened a couple of years ago, and we had a really phenomenal production of um, the Magic Flute, which is a, an, a very old school opera. Um, and we had, there was a very modern version of it that was sort of based in like a 1920s aesthetic of silent film. So it had this really interesting incorporation of um, having projections with words on them, along with the arias that were being sung, along with the sort of 
other production elements with the piece. It was a very, very complicated piece. Um, and we decided that that was a really amazing opportunity to invite people who are blind to. Um, so the intention of the artists that um, put together this, this version really leaned heavily on, again, words that were um, displayed on a screen um, using projections, really complex projections, and then also to have performers on stage that was sort of a, a highly costumed aesthetic to it. Um, so it, we knew that um, opera is something that um, has amazing um, an audio component to it. It's storytelling. Um, it has a, a, a huge band, a huge orchestra associated with it. So there were a lot of really interesting elements that could work really well for folks who are blind, but there, we also had to figure out how to make these visual elements accessible. Um, so we gave it a try um, and we did it in the, the version that I think um, is something that, again, as someone who is, who is not disabled, I, I try really hard to practice stepping back and hearing from people with lived experience. Um, so we put together a working group. So we pulled together um, a group of people who were blind or had low vision, a range of, of vision loss, and had, had them come together and meet with our audio describers. We put together a team of audio describers to work on the piece. We described the piece and we sort of asked them, do you like this or that better? Let's listen to a piece of the, the of the audio um, and then we're going to describe the visual elements in two ways you give us feedback um, so we had a, a really um, fantastic working group um, that helped us figure out those things and then they came to the opera um, and it was so special it was in um, the Metropolitan Opera House which is this super grand beautiful beautiful building um, it has 4,000 seats it's it's a real emotional experience to to experience a piece in, in that kind of audience um, and it, it's also a really elegant place so I think that a lot of um, a lot of our visitors um, especially people who are blind or have low vision may not have had that experience before of being in that space. Um, I'm thinking of one person specifically who said like, I had never heard an opera before and to have, be able to be part of this performance, you know, made me realize a new love that I didn't have in the arts, which is again, whenever you hear those words, it, it makes me feel like all oh, this work is totally worth it. Um, so it was a really like phenomenal transformative night. Um, and uh, the people that came really, really enjoyed it. I learned a lot about describing, again, really complex productions. I think our audio describers learned a lot and it was really successful. Um, but then at the end of the night, um, two of the folks that came, it was a, a couple, both of them, one was blind, one person had low vision, um, and they were waiting for their Accessoride, which um, if your uh, listeners are in New York City, Accessoride is our paratransit system um, for people with disabilities. So you're able to call and organize a ride. Um, there, um, they had this beautiful night. I think it was a three hour opera. It was a complicated night. They were exhausted. They, they were older adults. They went to get in their car and their car didn't show up for almost an hour. Um, so I spent about an hour with them outside of, of Lincoln Center trying to figure out how to get home. And they didn't have the money to order a cab without going through Accessoride. It was a really um, disheartening end to the night. So it was just a, a, a lot of ups and downs with them and, and eventually getting home. But it sort of reminded me that, um, you know, we can do a lot to make the arts come alive. I know that the arts, you know, are really transformative for a lot of people, but um, there's so many things we have to do on a societal level um, to make people with disabilities have um, the same access to transportation, the same access to the arts. Like it's, it's one thing to make your space accessible. It's another thing to think about all of the things that people need to go through to get to you um, to be able to experience those things. So it was a really, um, it was a really interesting night for me to consider those, those kinds of elements. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for sharing that. I think um, it is an important reminder with all of the work that we're doing, um, you know, that there is always, always more to be done and, and always um, kind of room for improvement. 
I would love to shift gears a little bit and learn more about the accessibility program specifically that Lincoln Center offers. Um, can you share any specific moments or impacts from any of these programs? Sure, I can share um, a couple of moments that stand out to me. Um, one is uh, a few years ago, um, we were hearing more and more from our subscribers that um, people were not renewing their subscription to um, some performing arts um, like at the New York Philharmonic as people aged and um, some people as they developed dementia were no longer able to come to evening performances. Uh, so we created a new series called Lincoln Center Moments that was um, specifically designed to take those main stage performances and put them in the afternoon at a more accessible time for people in a smaller space and a more accessible space. And then we um, trained teaching artists and music therapists to do workshops after those performances so that people are able to feel a social connection to each other, really sort of draw out um, people's individuality, which is one thing that um, goes missing a lot as, as people's um, dementia progresses over time. Uh, so it was, it's been a really phenomenal program to think about how power, when we think about the power of the arts, you know, specifically for people who are, who are losing a lot of elements of, of, you know, what, what makes them an individual and what makes them feel connected to themselves and others, again, as this, as their disease progresses, um, we, we've been able to put together a program that really, really validates the individual, validates social connection, validates, um, you know, their, their self-expression. Um, so that, that has been like a really, really amazing process. Um, and another thing that we're, we're really proud of at Lincoln Center is um, we recognize that people with disabilities um, have much more of a chance of being unemployed or underemployed. Um, it's a, a, a phenomenal rate, depending on where you live in the country, of um, the number of people who are unemployed who have disabilities. Um, so we were thinking about how to make a, a small impact, a little tiny dent in those numbers um, by thinking of um, how to create pre-employment skills in people when they're in high school or transition age. Um, so we we have um, a residency type model where we work with right now six different schools in New York City um, where we have um, teaching artists and educators go in and teach job training skills with them and then they work on campus um, in uh, front of house shifts so they learn how to interact with the public they work on their social skills they work on how to work on a team um, how to uh, go through a self-assessment process so just like any of us that have ever looked for a job we have to think about what are we good at how do we answer questions about our strengths and skills um, so we go through that that process with students and we're super proud to say that um, many of them have gone on to get employment either at Lincoln Center or other performing arts organizations. Even more have realized that, um, you know, front of house and performing arts are not for them, which is also a really valuable thing to learn when you're in high school, what you're good at and what you're not good at. Um, and uh, I think, you know, in, in, our, in our small way, we really wanna shift how many people with um, disabilities are make up our staff and especially in the performing arts. That sounds like a really impactful program. Um, I'm curious um, if any or you know how many of those people end up becoming kind of um, are they involved in the performances um, or is it more kind of a organizational type roles or things like that? Great question. Right now, um, most of our, our access ambassadors are, we're training them specifically for front of house. So they're learning how to interact with the public, um, which is also a really powerful message to send audience members. When audience members see people with disabilities in positions of, of power and importance, I think it's a really important message to send to people that we value a, a diversity of experiences in our staff. Um, but we are excited to think of how we can expand that role to other types of positions throughout the organization because certainly there's no um, there's no 
not everyone wants to work in front of house and there is a need for people with disabilities in all levels of the organization. Absolutely, that's really cool. So I'm curious how technology um, has advanced access to the arts for people with disabilities. You know, at 3Play, um, we talk about captions and audio description and kind of the digital and video um, accessibility perspective, but I'd love to hear a little bit about how tech has played into the performing arts. Yeah, it's been a really interesting year from that perspective, for sure. Um, so as all of our performances moved online, became virtual, we've done it in a bunch of different ways. Um, we've had um, live synchronous experiences where a performer performs via Zoom um, and that audience members are able to interact with those performers. And then we've had them with recorded content too, where we have performers recording themselves in their studios or at Lincoln Center in a socially distanced way. And then we've had those videos um, put up on our website. Um, so we've had to become really um, experts around digital accessibility. And I will say that 3Play played a huge role um, in making that happen for us um, because we went from having, you know, a handful of videos each month, which we were able to caption in-house um, to having to caption, you know, tens to hundreds of hours of content each month. So it really, really shifted the balance um, of what we were offering online. Um, so it meant that we needed to outsource that and 3Play is our vendor for that. Um, it also meant that we um, just had to educate our staff a lot more on digital accessibility. So um, the, the primary ways that we've thought about that is, um, you know, primarily captioning. We're also thinking about translation and um, language access, language equity in our work. Um, we are also thinking about audio description, which is complicated with the arts because um, so much of the artist's intention is um, really vital and um, so much of the um, experience of the viewer is dependent on their knowledge of, for example, if, if it's a ballet piece, um, whether or not you know what a tondu is, like matters, right? So the, the language that the audio describer uses has to be at sort of the right education level for the, the type of um, dance that's being shown um, so that the most people understand um, what's going on with, with the ballet or the dance piece. Um, so we have um, focused a lot on captioning. We've thought a lot about audio description. Um, and we've also are doing more live streamed events. So thinking about how to um, have a cart operator who's working um, with us in person. And also that is um, ending up on live stream is, is something that we're working through right now. Uh, so from, from a, a, a positive impact side, um, I think that it has really forced our organization to think about accessibility from a marketing and digital standpoint in a much more serious way because again, the balance of our content became virtual really, really quickly. Um, also platforms like Zoom have a lot of great integration of accessibility, which has been really, really helpful for us. Um, it's also really identified our growing pains in the places that we need to focus a lot more on um, digital inclusion, the places that we fall short. Um, so we have, again, a long way to go to figure out audio description in a really um, smart and integrated way. Um, but we have started practice um, at all of our offerings to do um, an image description at the top of our performances. We've trained our staff on how to describe slides more clearly. So I think that we've we've made a lot of strides because of um, the past year and, and things going online. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I know, you know, everyone was kind of in the same boat where no matter what industry or, um, you know, you were in, everything kind of shifted very quickly. So it sounds like um, you were able to do a lot to adjust, which is awesome. Um, you know, I know that we've, we've both kind of mentioned throughout this conversation that there's still work to be done. And I'm curious, 
if there are any sort of innovations that you're particularly excited about or any that you wish existed to make the arts more accessible. I would love, love, love to see a way for audio description to be turned off and on as a track, the way that you can go onto YouTube and turn captioning on and off. Um, I think that that would be an amazing thing to do. Um, right now, our solution for audio description is to have a separate video so people can click on a separate video. And I think if you're um, uh, taking a step beyond audio description, another thing to consider is um, uh, people who need to not have captioning or any other accommodations visible um, because of sensory uh, disabilities, people that need plain text. Um, so if there is a way to sort of turn off and on layering of digital content, the way that captioning can be turned off and on, I think that would be an amazing um, integration to, that I would love to see an innovation I'd love to see. Awesome. Um... I don't know if I'll include this in here, but uh, you should check out our, I don't know if you do audio description through 3Play, but our plugin actually allows you to do that. Oh, I'll check um, that. Yeah, which is, I'm happy to follow up with more details. Um, yeah, how does it show up? Is it um, like, would it show up on YouTube? So I, it won't show up on YouTube. You would have to embed the YouTube video um, as well as the plugin on like a web page or something like that. And then it's just like a little gray box um, that shows up under the video and it allows you to like pause. Um, yeah, you can, it's, it's like what you said, like it basically allows you to shut off or on the audio description, um, adjust the volume of the audio description separately from the original track. Um, That's so cool. Yes, I would love to see that. Yeah, yeah, I'll definitely um, send that to you uh, to check out. So more broadly, is there anything that you hope to see um, that you hope that performing arts will look like in the future for people with disabilities? Yeah, there's a, a lot of things I'm I'm hoping for in the next in the next decades. Um, one is, is more disabled artists and disabled artistry, um, more disabled stories being told. Um, I think is really really crucial. Um, one of the the really powerful things that the arts can do is, is to be a mirror to you, to give you an example, um, to see your life um, on a stage and to validate your own experiences. And, you know, I definitely can think of the first books that I read that I felt like I really identify with that character. I really see myself in that character. And so many people with disabilities don't have that same experience um, at really formative ages. So I would love to see how we as a field can um, support disabled artistry um, and disabled artists in a much more serious way. Um, and to also adjust our, our systems to make sure that disabled artists can thrive, which means that, you know, not only does, do our audience spaces need to be physically accessible, but our backstages do too. Um, you know, a lot of our sort of systems um, are very ableist of, you know, making people sign contracts really quickly or, you know, um, asking people to, um, you know, write their marketing content very, very quickly, or put together pieces very quickly. I think that we don't give people a lot of space to really think and create and support that process. Um, for many institutions. So I, I would love to see how we can think about, um, you know, looking at our, our ableist practices and making space for disabled artists to really thrive. Um, on the audience side, um, I would, I'm really excited to think about how we can support the concept of relaxed performances, um, which are um, something that's really taken off in the UK, but um, has not been done in the most integrated way in the US. Um, there's certainly some standouts and roundabout theater in New York is 
definitely one of them doing amazing work in relaxed performances. Um, but a relaxed performance um, was described to me as uh, kind of like the quiet car, but the opposite. Um, so it's saying that um, as some of the standard rules that you have when you attend a performance, which is get into your seat before the show starts, sit silently as soon as the baton is lifted and don't move um, at all and stay there and don't go to the bathroom, don't do anything and then leave when the show is over. Um, that's not the way that most people need um, to really interact in, with the piece. Um, so some people have involuntary sounds that they make. Some people need to pace or move around. Um, some people just don't know the social rules uh, of attending and they feel um, excluded or are discriminated against during the process of attending a performance. So how can we lift and, and shift those rules to make it so that everyone feels that the arts are a space for them? Um, and some of the rules are, are really unnecessary um, for the most people to get the most impact. Um, how can we layer on things like quiet spaces if you need to take a break? How can we remove the no late seating rules? Um, how can we have accommodations be standard so you can walk into a performance and pick up noise canceling headphones if you need to or assistive listening devices or captioning devices? Um, how can all those things, those experiences be normalized? Um, and how can we sort of shift the way that audiences um, or how can we have audiences be a place that that uh, um, promotes empathy? So how can you sit next to someone who experiences the piece differently than you but experiences it with so much joy that you understand um, their experience a little bit more. Um, so I'd be really excited to see how we can shift toward relaxed performances as a as a foundation, as sort of a core to the work that we do, not in, in addition to or instead of standard experience. Um, and then from a staffing side, which we've we've talked about a little bit before, but um, how can we um, look at our hiring practices and take away unnecessary barriers? Um, does your college internship really need to be someone who's in college? Can it be someone who's college aged? Um, college age shifts for people with disabilities that may enter colleges later in life. Um, do you really need to lift 15 pounds to work in the finance department? Do you really need, you know, to be, I think what we've all learned in the past year is that you don't need to be physically at your at work to do work um, and you can be incredibly productive without being um, in a cubicle. So um, how can we look at these, these practices and make sure that we're removing barriers to get the most diverse and most talented workforce that we possibly can? How can we value people's lived experiences, um, especially those with, with disabilities to see as, as, a, as an enhancement of, um, of our employee pool of our recruiting practice? So those are the three areas I would love to see a shift in. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, I really appreciate it. And definitely uh, just kind of a reminder that there's, you know, there's a lot to think about and a lot to do. And um, a lot of it really does. You, you touched on empathy and a lot of it does come down to empathy and just like understanding other work, everyone's in, individual and experiences things differently and really just kind of, you know, shifting some of the things that we're used to, to be more understanding of, of others' needs. Um, well, thank you so much. Before we wrap up, I would love to ask where can our listeners find you um, and the Lincoln Center online? Thanks for asking. Um, please come to lincolncenter.org to learn more about what we have to offer. We have a very active um, social media presence on Facebook, YouTube, um, 
and Instagram and Twitter. Um, and especially YouTube has some real gems, um, some older performances, some really new and innovative artists disabled artists. So I would recommend spending a little time on our YouTube page, turn on the captioning, enjoy the captioning, check out audio description. Um, and we hope that uh, we start welcoming people back in person as soon as possible. We reopened campus about a month ago and we're holding performances almost every day. So we hope that you can join us in person as well. Awesome. Thank you. And one question that I just want to wrap up with, do you have a final piece of advice that you'd like to leave our listeners with today? Yeah, I think um, it's really important to um, think about accessibility not as something that you're adding on. So it's not in addition to your work that you are adding on accommodations or thinking about people with disabilities. If you're not doing accessibility work, it means that you're not actually doing your job. Um, over a quarter of Americans have disabilities. Uh, we need to really not be programming for the one non-disabled person that we have in our mind. We need to think about um, diversity in a, in a much different way, um, which means that accessibility, again, is not something that we're adding on. It's not something extra to our job. It is our job. It's crucial to our job to make sure that the work that we're creating can reach the most people as possible. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Allied. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave us a rating and review. To catch all the latest on accessibility, visit www.3playmedia.com backslash Allied Podcast. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.